Well, good morning, Tate's Creek Presbyterian. It's a great privilege to be back here among you. Um, it has been a, a great past two weeks for myself, my fiance Marina, my brother Neil and his wife Gillian. We've been here with you for the conference. We've been overwhelmed by your uh, southern generosity and hospitality. Will said at the beginning that we've been doing many things, and one of the many things we've been doing is eating and drinking. <laughs> and I was about to preach there in a full bladder, and I thought, that's not a good idea. <laughs> but um, we've been so blessed by you guys, and it's been great to be with you. Well, let me invite you to take God's word and turn with me to Revelation 20, chapter 21. You'll find this on page 1041 if you're using a church Bible. I'm going to read the first seven verses. Let's hear God's word. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. And the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city the new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have this heritage and I will be his God and he will be my son. God, may the meditation of all our hearts the words of my mouth be pleasing and acceptable in your presence and sight. And we pray this in our Savior's name. Amen. So all of you by now will have heard that on this past Wednesday, a great giant of the faith has walked through the valley of the shadow of death. And he has walked into the arms of his loving Savior that he served for decades. Only eternity will reveal the impact that Billy Graham had upon this earth under God. Your senior minister, Robert Cunningham, wrote what I thought was one of the most fitting tributes for Billy Graham this week on the KSR website. It was entitled, Billy Graham's Good News. And there, Robert paid tribute to Graham by sharing the good news that Graham lived to preach. If you haven't read this tribute, I would highly recommend that you do so. Now, near the end of the article, Robert writes, Graham is finally inheriting the good news 
of his message. Robert's absolutely right. Billy Graham right now is in the presence of the Jesus he loved to faithfully proclaim to literally millions upon millions of people throughout this world. And he is inheriting the good news of his message. I don't know if you know this, but this past week, millions of people around the world decided to pay tribute to Billy Graham by reposting or retweeting a quote of Graham's. It was shared every 15 seconds on Twitter. Literally, it went viral. And the quote is this. Someday you will read or hear that Billy Graham is dead. Don't you believe a word of it? I shall be more alive than I am now. I will just have changed my address. I will have gone into the presence of God. One of the writers on the Christianity Today website said, it's a stirring remark that captures the heart of the evangelist's life and message. His focus was on the gospel and his confidence was in eternity. And I mentioned that at the outset of this sermon because what I'd love us to focus our attention on this morning is what Billy Graham placed his confidence in. The gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ and the hope of eternity with Jesus Christ. And my hope and prayer is that this will be a fitting tribute to Billy Graham and that we will know the end. That we will study to know the end, to think about what will happen when Jesus comes again in his second coming. And we're going to do that by focusing our attention on Revelation chapter 21, which gives us the most breathtaking description of what our future holds in Christ. And as we study to know the end, I pray that it will make a huge difference to how we live our lives in the here and now. Now, I don't know if you know this, but the book of Revelation is called Revelation because the word literally means to unveil. This book unveils for us what will happen at the end of the story of our world. This book gives us insight into the unseen realities of the heavenly realms, and it allows us to see what awaits us in the future. I love what Paul David Tripp said about the book of Revelation. He said, it is a book that allows us to eavesdrop on eternity. This morning, we are going to eavesdrop on eternity as we study the vision of the Apostle John as he was exiled in the island of Patmos. Just so you know, we're, we're only going to be looking at verses 1 and 2. But as we study these verses, we are going to see the ultimate goals of the gospel of redemption. Namely, to restore mankind's relationship with God, to reverse the curse of fallen creation, and to renew the heavens and the earth to the way God originally intended it to be in order that we might glorify and enjoy him forever. So two headings for us to look, under, to, look at, uh, uh, to use as we look at these two verses. Number one, our future home in God's creation. Number two, our upcoming wedding in, as a church to Christ in the new creation. So let's first focus our attention on our future home in the new creation. Look at verse one with me. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. These words have a faint allusion to the opening words of the Bible. 
in Genesis 1, verse 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Has it ever struck you that the Bible is literally bookended with statements on creation? The Bible opens in Genesis chapter 1 and 2 with a story of the heavens and the earth. Then the Bible closes in Revelation chapter 21 and 22 on the, create, on the new creation of the heavens and the earth. And I want to suggest to you this is deliberate. The, the grand story of the Bible begins and ends with creation. And part of the reason is because God wants us to know the end. God wants us to know the destiny that awaits us in the new creation. He wants us to know that it, the new creation is similar to the old creation, yet different. Let's first think about the ways in which the new creation is similar. In Genesis chapter 1 and 2, the original creation is a real, physical, tangible, beautiful place. Revelation 21 unveils for us that the new creation will be a real, physical, tangible, beautiful place. The new creation is not some ethereal place where disembodied people float around on clouds. That's often the caricature we get in popular culture. No, no the new creation will be filled with real people with real glorious resurrected bodies living in a real tangible and beautiful world. Listen to Randy Alcon writing in his outstanding book on heaven. He writes, the idea of the new earth as a physical place isn't an invention of short-sighted imagination. Rather, it's the invention of a transcendent God who made physical human beings to live in a physical earth and who chose to become a man himself on that same earth. He did this that he might redeem mankind and earth. Close quote. The end of the gospel has always been for redeemed mankind to live in a real, physical, beautiful, tangible creation. Now, I want you to notice something in verse 1. See, see the word new. In the original, there are two words that can be used for new. One Greek word means brand spanking new. The other word means to be renewed. It is the latter that is employed here. Thus, Revelation 21 verse 1 unveils for us that our future home, get this, is actually this very world only renewed. That's important to know. I know that some sincere Christians have a real difficulty when they hear a preacher say that heaven is a, is a place on earth. It's this earth renewed. They, they think it's a, a novel idea, an unbiblical idea, but it's not. It's quite the opposite. Now, one of the reasons some people think that heaven is not this earth is because they're shaped by the, mo the, the popular terminology of going to heaven or they're shaped by what they have seen depicted on stained glass windows. It's interesting, you, you actually won't find the termino terminology in the Bible of going to heaven as being this ethereal place. The eternal destination when Christ comes again is a real place. Now one of the reasons I think some people think this is because they, they, they conclude this, the physical realm is bad. 
the spiritual realm must be good. If God is spirit and God is good, heaven surely is spiritual and heaven surely is the place of the good. But listen, in God's good purposes, he made both the physical and the spiritual realities good. Think of the original creation. It was very good. And what's more, the physical realm has real purposes in the heart of God because Christ, the second person of the Trinity, took him took upon himself human flesh and he lived here among us. Thus both the physical realm and the spiritual realm have their purposes in God's perfect plan of redemption. And brothers and sisters, this should change the way we think. This should change the way we live our lives. That means that we're freed up to love this beautiful world that we live in without feeling guilty. We are freed up to love the the good things of this world and we are freed up to say no to the things that have been corrupted by sin. God gave us this very good world because of his great love for us. And you know what that reveals? That life here on this earth, right now, it matters to God. When you know the end, It informs the present. And life here right now matters to God. We're not to brush aside our life here on earth as a mere practicing ground for our future. No, we should recognize that whatever we do in this world, regardless of how big or small it is, it should be done to God's glory and for the world's good. Do you know that it matters to God if you're a teacher or a street sweeper? If you're a banker? or a bus driver, if you're a single mom, or you're a grandmother. What we've often wrongly assumed about heaven is that we've reduced it to this place that we look forward to as an alternative to this intolerable existence here on earth. Do you know what that is to do? That is to malign the God-given instinct to love the things that God has made which are very good. We're to love the good things of this world. Each other, family, friends, art, culture, science, sports, education. We're to love them because God has made them for our good. So this world will be renewed and it is for our good. Now, there's, there's a, a, a verse that some people who take, uh, uh, people who are resistant to this idea that it's this earth renewed, there's, there's a verse they point to, it's in 2 Peter chapter 3 and verse 10, and they say, that verse reveals that what's going to happen at the end of the world is this world's going to be burned up, right? So surely it can't be this world if God's going to totally and utterly destroy it at the second coming. Well, let me read to you what it says in 2 Peter chapter 3. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief. The heavens will disappear with a roar. The elements will be destroyed by fire, and the earth and everything in it will be... Now, this is the key part. In the King James, the old, the authorized Bible, it says burned up. In your Bible, the ESV, it says exposed or laid bare. Our translation here this morning gets to the heart of it. This world will be burned, but it will be laid bare so that God can renew this world. Peter goes on and says, in keeping with his promises, we are looking forward to a new heavens and a new earth, the home of righteousness. And what Peter says there is a renewed heaven and earth. And so the the word of God does not teach that this world is going to be utterly destroyed, but actually it's going to temporarily 
have this fire to remove the curse in order that the old creation will be renewed to what God intended it to be. Let me just quote two, two guys to, to reveal this viewpoint. John Piper, he writes this, when Revelation 21 verse 1 and 2 Peter 3.10 say that the present earth and heavens will pass away, it does not have to mean that they go out of existence. Rather, there will be such a change in them that their present condition passes away. Herman Bavinck, a reformed theologian of the 20th century, said, according to scripture, the present world will neither continue nor will it be destroyed and be replaced by a totally new one. Instead, it will be cleansed of sin and recreated, reborn, renewed, and made whole. For the rebirth of human beings is completed in the glorious rebirth of all creation. The ultimate purpose of the gospel provided by Christ is to restore God's old creation to what it intended to be. Can you imagine that? It's really hard to imagine. Imagine a world without thorn or thistle, death or decay, a place that doesn't require toil or weariness, where there's no sickness and pain, a world set free from the curse of Genesis John desperately wants us to see that this world is going to be a renewed world set free from the curse. Look at what he says at the end of this verse 1. The sea was no more. Now the sea here isn't a reference to the physical sea. Rather, the sea here is a symbol of chaos. So see if you love the seaside and the beach, don't worry. In the new creation, there will be the sea and the beaches. That's not John's point here. In the book of Revelation, the sea and the symbolism that John is working with is a picture of the place of anarchy and disorder. Revelation 13 says Satan emerges from the sea. And so what Jesus is unveiling for us is that in the new creation there will be nothing to threaten our peace and our happiness. There will be no disorder, no malice, no evil, no roaring unrest, no raging conflict. All that characterizes our fallen world, war, murder, rape, starvation, abuse, injustice, oppression, violence, terrorism, racism, greed, death itself, it will no longer mark this world. Listen to how Billy Graham puts it. The second coming of Christ will be so revolutionary that it will change every aspect of life on this planet. Christ will reign in righteousness. Disease will be arrested. Death will be modified. War will be abolished. Nature will be changed. And man will live as it was originally intended he should live. The vision that Revelation unveils is that at the end, this world will be renewed. Now, why does knowing the end make a difference to our life here and now. I don't know what part of your personal story you're in. Maybe bleak or depressing, maybe painful or difficult right now. You may be struggling with life. Your body may be falling to pieces right now, but one day it won't. Your health may be failing right now, but one day it won't. Your life might feel like it's falling apart but one day it won't for this world will be set free from the curse of sin 
There will be nothing to hinder our communion with Christ. There will be nothing to hinder our joy in Christ. There will be nothing to hinder our purpose in Christ. Just think about that. That should change the way we think. And that should change the way we live. That should fill us with joy. That should fill us with hope. And that should fill us with confidence. The same confidence that Billy Graham lived with in his years on this earth. God is going to make this world so that we can glorify and enjoy him forever. Let's look at our second point now. The return of Christ will not only signal our new home in the new creation, but it will signal our future wedding in the new creation. Look at verse 2. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, adorned for her husband. Just before we look at the, the upcoming wedding, did you notice there that heaven will come down? Heaven will be a place on earth. Heaven itself will invade the new earth. God will relocate the heavenly city to this earth. Knowing the end is very important. The Lord's prayer will be fulfilled. Your kingdom come, your will be done as it is here on earth as it is in heaven. Now, now what's really interesting is that symbolism that John's working with isn't it interesting that heaven is depicted as a city? It's depicted as a new Jerusalem. Why? Well, I think one of the reasons, one of the things Jesus wants to unveil to us here is that the reverse of the curse that's going to take place. Do you remember how in the Old Testament, right, Jerusalem was where God dwelt with his people? Do you remember in the Old Testament that Jerusalem, the people of Israel were so prone to wandering from God, turning their back on God, that God had to exercise his judgment upon his people again and again. Do you remember how Jesus said in the New Testament, oh Jerusalem, oh Jerusalem, you're a city that kills prophets. I've longed to gather you like children as a hen gathers her brood under her wings and you would not. What do we see here at the end of the Bible? We see here that the curse of Jerusalem is reversed. Because Jerusalem's called now a holy city. It's called a new Jerusalem. It's a renewed and transformed place. That's glorious. In the, in the Old Testament Bible, God's relationship with his people is often depicted as a marriage. Jerusalem was so bad that in the book of Jeremiah, the people of Israel, God actually filed for a divorce with his own people. Tim Keller puts it really well when he says, in the Old Testament, God was trapped in the worst marriage in the history of the world. They just kept on turning their back on him. And now we see that heaven is depicted as a holy city, the new Jerusalem. And, and not only that, according to verse 2 and the second half of it, the new Jerusalem doesn't only represent a transformed place. Listen, it represents a transformed people, the church, because it says the new city, the holy city, the new Jerusalem will be prepared as a bride beautifully dressed for her husband. I know that the marriage conference is over, but listen, we Christians must never lose sight of marriage because or at least the purpose of marriage, because from the very beginning of creation, marriage was designed by God to point us to the ultimate marriage, the marriage union between Christ and the church. If you're married here, the purpose of your marriage has always been to be an echo, a tangible taste of the most enriching intimacy we will savor 
when Jesus comes to Mary's church. In Britain right now, the papers, the televisions, the magazines, they are filled with talk on the upcoming royal wedding. Prince Harry is about to marry Meghan Merkel. Everyone is speculating. Who's going to be invited? Who's going to be there? What's she going to be wearing? What's he going to be wearing? Listen, the marriage that will take place at the end, when Jesus comes again, will make that, the royal marriage look like nothing because there will be a beautiful bride, the church, and there will be a glorious groom, Jesus Christ. Do you know what Revelation 19 verse 9 says? Blessed are those who are invited to this wedding, the wedding supper of the Lamb. If you're a Christian here, you're going to be at the wedding supper of the Lamb. If you're not yet a Christian here, you're invited to come to this marriage. But you need to respond by trusting in Jesus for salvation by faith alone in Christ alone. There's no wedding like this wedding. In fact, it's amazing enough that Revelation 19 says we're invited to a king's wedding. But do you know what's beyond amazing? We will be the king's bride. Think about that for a few billion years. Here at the end of this story, we, those of us who are in Christ, are presented as a beautiful bride to be presented to a glorious groom. Some of you know that in a, in a couple of months, I'm getting married. I can't wait. <laughs> I can't wait to see my bride beautifully dressed. I can't wait because Robert, your senior minister, he's coming to marry, to conduct the, the, the wedding ceremony. I can't wait to see him in a kilt. I can't wait. <laughs> I, I just can't wait to this wedding ceremony that will showcase the gospel, that will point to the profound mystery of marriage, that it points to Christ and his love for the church. But listen, all history has been longing for, anticipating, pointing towards this marriage, the marriage where we will become one with Christ Jesus. And that is mind-blowing because we're the ones who sinned and rebelled against this God. We're the ones who declared independence from Him. And now because of His grace and His love and His favor, He will rescue us and He will make us one with Him. At the end, there will be a, God will have a redeemed people for himself. He will have a renewed creation for himself and he will have a restored relationship with us for himself. Creation will be what it was intended to be. Have you ever noticed, right, that at the beginning of the Bible, there was a marriage, Genesis chapter 2, and it was a match made in heaven. Adam and Eve, God prepared the bride. Uh, do you remember how Adam sung the first love song? I'm not going to sing it. Bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. Match made in heaven. At the end of the Bible, there's another match made in heaven. Christ and the church. Match made in heaven. Glorious. Now, as I draw this to a close, why does it matter? Think about how it changed Billy Graham. How he thought and how he lived. Billy Graham grasped the gospel, loved Jesus Christ as his Lord and his Savior, and he knew where he was headed. And we've got to remember this, right? Billy Graham 
was just an ordinary man like you and me who was used by an extraordinary God. History already records that Billy Graham preached, whether through his crusades, television or radio, to 2.2 billion people in the world. There has been no other Christian preacher to preach to as many people as Billy Graham. What motivated Billy Graham to preach to the millions upon millions of every tribe, tongue, and nation? He knew that his life here on earth mattered to God. He knew that what he was called by God to do, he wanted to make count. And so brothers and sisters, whatever God has called us to do, whatever sphere of life we're in, whatever season of life we're in, we are called to make it count. And we're called to be motivated by the same thing that motivated Billy Graham, his love of Jesus Christ, his future bride, who's the worthy Savior who spent and suffered in his life so that we could be at one with him. Why did this great servant of the church proclaim, preach, and live out his days? Because he knew the end. But more than that, he knew Christ. He knew that he would never be able to get enough of Christ. He was mesmerized by the depths of Christ's being and those depths can never be exhausted. He knew that beholding Christ and proclaiming Christ was not some passing interest. No, he knew that proclaiming Christ was the greatest thing. Right now, Billy Graham will be exploring the new beauties and unfolding the mysteries and experiencing the delight of being with Christ. In heaven, he's at home with the one he loves and who loves him wholeheartedly. Do you know true lovers never get bored? Let me give the last word to Billy Graham. Heaven gives us hope for today and hope for the future. No matter what we're facing, we know it's only temporary because ahead of us is heaven our home of righteousness, and our future wedding to the one we love. Let's pray.